Well, good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Merry Christmas. That was weak. Let's try that again. All right, it's Christmas. Merry Christmas. Awesome. That was great. Hey, my name is Eric Northrup. Like Stephen said, I am the Independence Campus Pastor, and I could barely sleep last night because I am so excited to share with you uh, a little bit of my heart. I get to share with you what I believe is the greatest, the single most life-altering event in all of human history. It's the story and the meaning of Christmas. And Christmas is the historical record of God himself invading our world in the most shocking, miraculous, mind-boggling way in the form of a frail, dependent baby boy, Jesus Christ himself, who fits in the palm of our hands, who breathes his first breath and ultimately grows up to become the savior of the world on the cross. At the heart of the Christmas story is Matthew 1:23. It says this, "For the virgin sh- shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us." See, the Christmas story, friends, is a story about Jesus. But before we dive into the story, I would like to share just a little fact about myself. Some of you know Uh, that my favorite place, one of my favorite places in the whole world is to go to the Boundary Waters. It's in northern Minnesota, Canada. It's a million acres of just land and water with no motorized vehicles. They literally call it the canoe country, where you take your canoe, you take your pack, and you portage from lake to lake as you explore the depths of the Boundary Waters. And there was one night where me and a couple of my friends, we decided to row out into the middle of the lake at 12 o'clock at night. It's pitch black. I'm not even a great swimmer. I do have my life jacket on. But we row out in the middle of the lake, and then we just lay back in our canoes. Here was the visual that we had. Billions of stars all around. If you don't know, that's the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy that we live in. And it's just showing off in all its glory uh, and its splendor. There's shooting stars left and right. Every direction you look, they're streaking across the sky. And then the northern lights, it's right here. They're just dancing across the night sky. It was breathtaking. But what makes the Boundary Waters so special is that there are no other lights up there to rob or minimize the stars of their glory, for it's in utter darkness. And just like the Boundary Waters, here today, my hope is that you will see the vast disparity of two great themes found in the Bible, light and darkness. And Jesus, the Bible says, is our great light of the world, and yet man and the world is in utter darkness. It's in the world, it's in our country, It's in our very own hearts. And I tell you that because without a proper understanding of the darkness the Bible portrays, you will never come to appreciate the great light of the world for us. So what does the Bible say about man's darkness? Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. Yeah. It's awesome. I'm so glad, man. Please, I encourage that, by the way, so don't worry about that. 
And we're going to start just right above Isaiah 9 and, and verse 21 of chapter 8. It says this, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shown. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now go to the right to John 3. John 3. It's one of the Gospels. It's before Acts, after Luke. John three nineteen. It says this. And this is judgment. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that in it they may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. And my first point today, guys, of why there's darkness in our world is this, that men and women pursued evil instead of God. We see in Isaiah 9 that the people walked in darkness. It talks about the, the gloom, the anguish, the distress. John three nineteen. people loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. So their actions were evil, and that's because their hearts, verse 20, says that they hated the light. They wanted nothing to do with God. And so what does it mean to walk or live in darkness? It means to live in sin, to pursue evil. Sin is a direct and active rebellion against a holy and righteous God. Sin places ourselves at the center of our throne in our little kingdom of one. And we will do everything possible to self-protect, self-advance, self-indulge, because ultimately it's about our wants and our desires, not God's. Sin is trying to find life outside of God. We desperately want to be in control. I was just thinking, when's the last time you might have gotten angry? Was it because someone violated God's law or did they violate your law? You didn't do what I expected. You didn't listen to me. And then anger comes out. From the beginning and until now, men and women, women pursue their own truth, their own ways apart from God. And darkness is inevitable, both in the world 
and inside of us. For any and all darkness, guys, is void of God. It's void of God. And the Bible makes it clear that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We've all gone our own ways. That's Romans 3.23. In Psalm 14, 2 through uh, 3, it says this, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there's anyone who understands, anyone who seeks God. The verdict? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Jeremiah 2, 13 is one of the most acute depictions of the human heart when it comes to sin. God is speaking through his prophet Jeremiah and says this about the people. It says, my people have committed two sins. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Another version says the fountain of life. And number two, They have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. And so God is saying, here I am. I'm the fountain of living water, the spring of life. And yet you are going after all these other things besides me to try to satisfy your soul. Why do you waste your time, your money, your affections on things that can never satisfy you? Any created thing in this world, guys will never fill the depths of your soul. Only the creator who formed you and knows you better than you know yourself can give you the life and the wholeness that we all desperately crave within our hearts. And not only do we forsake him, this verse reveals the second point of why there's darkness, is that men and women try to fix and save themselves. Verse 13, they, they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Matthew Henry's commentary says this. It says that they took a great deal of pains to hew themselves out cisterns, to dig pits or pools in the earth of rock, which they would carry water to, or which should receive the rain. But they proved to be broken, false at the bottom, so that they could hold no water. When they came to quench their thirst, they found nothing but mud and mire and filthy sediments of a standing lake. And so it's this visual that these people are working day in, day out, laboring, toiling, all right, to make these cisterns. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, creating cisterns, right? It's good. But what God is saying is like, it's wrong when I'm right here. (laughs) Like there's a spring of living water, and yet you're still trying to be sufficient in and of yourself. You're still trying to be independent of me. You're trying to find life apart from me. And that's the sin I have against you. It shows your rebellious heart. And I have an illustration to hopefully uh, help make this point. Uh, But I need a kid. And real quick, I don't need a kid. I need a volunteer who's a kid. All right, so can I get a volunteer? Come on up. Hey, let's give it up for Jackson. Oh, wow, you are brave. You're just going to climb that. All right, Jackson, there is a microphone for you that should be right there. Steven's got it. Thank you, Steven. All right, Jackson, you got the microphone. You got the power. You want to come right here? Are you nervous? I'm a little nervous, too. (laughs) Anything you want to say? 
No, oh, don't do that. That's going to hurt. Hey, Jackson, real quick. All right, let's get into this. What is this right here? A cup. Is it a cup? All right. It could be. It could hold water. But could you put flowers in this? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a vase, right? And the, the uh, purpose of the vase is to put water, put flowers, maybe give it to your mom on Mother's Day. And, you know, I had a, a vase for you, but unfortunately, uh, on the way here, I tripped and I fell because I'm clumsy and I broke your vase. And so the gift I have for you is this vase right here, but I broke it and it shattered into a million pieces. But don't worry, I swept it up. I have all the pieces in here, okay? And I, I did my best to try to put it together for you. What do you think? Do you like this? Kind of. Kind of? Kind of? Do you want to take this home? I guess. Not, not really. Well, I guess. Well, here's the question. I also, since I broke the vase, but this is your gift, I got you some duct tape, all right? And I got you some glue. And so you can spend uh, from now till, till Christmas, all right? You can't even have Christmas because you're going to be working on this. To put this, put this vase back together with all these pieces. Do you want to do that? Yeah. What did you say? Yeah. You do? You want to put this vase back together? It's, it's going to be impossible though, right? Yeah. yeah, it is. Hey, I'm not going to give you this vase, but what do you think I should do with this vase? Throw it away. Throw it away. Hey, let's give it up for Jackson! Good job, bud. I'll take this. Reach up. Jump. Oh, gosh. That hurt my knee just watching that. Guys, I did not prep him at all for that. She could probably have saw. One of the things I, I did this simple illustration is because I believe that this vase represents our life. All right? Apart from Christ, the Bible says that we are all broken and shattered. Shattered in to a million of pieces. It's our sin. It's our motives. It's other people's sins towards us. But our life is looking like this. All right? And deep down, we have this desire, this this purpose to to be used, to, to feel whole. But if we're really honest with ourselves, this is oftentimes how we feel. I know there's a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of isolation, depression, anxiety of people walking in this room, right? Amongst us, right? 2020 has been a rough year. I know it's been for me, all right? But the lie is, is that, hey, we have it under control. We're not that bad. And we're not, you know, facing reality of what what we are, like who we are inside. And we have an identity crisis, guys. And, and check this out. The lie and what I see so many people doing, and I struggle with this myself, is you know what? I'm just gonna try harder. I'm gonna put in more work. I'm gonna try to fix myself. And so I spend my whole life trying to put pieces together to make me feel whole so that someone would love me for who I am, because there's this, this gaping hole. And guys, that's religion. If you're trying to work out, uh, you know, being accepted by God by doing good things, and that's the only way you're going to be accepted by him, 
That's religion. There's nothing we can do to make us right with God. We need a savior. We need a new vase, a new life. We need a redeemer to tell us what our worth is. Not going to all these other things in the world to define us, but letting the creator speak life into us. That's the reality. I have this quote by Paul Tripp. It should be in your bulletin. It says this, to every human being, sin is the ultimate, undefeated, undefeatable enemy. It captures and controls us all, and there is nothing we can do. It's either the height of arrogance or the depth of delusion to think that you are okay. None of us are okay. And the Bible communicates that the ramifications of sin is that we are stuck in our darkness. We are unable to save ourselves, and we deserve God's holy and righteous judgment. That's the darkness found in our world. But do you know what the great good news is? The good news is this, is that God and your mess still loves you. It's that simple. That God loves you and he says, I see you, I see worth in you and I'm going to enter into your mess, your sin, darkness, and I'm going to conquer it myself. Stop trying to to work or fix yourself. I am going to conquer that darkness. God knew that our condition, man's condition was so grave, so desperate that he was willing to go to extreme lengths to reach and rescue us. And this is a beauty in the glory of the Christmas story, that Christ came into our world, the God of the universe, to defeat the darkness within our own hearts. Let me show you from God's word. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 1. John 1. We're going to be starting in verse 9. It says this. This is John's version of the Christmas story, by the way. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is the the Greek word logos which in the Greek philosophy was this impersonal, this abstract, this lifeless, philosophical concept up in the sky that the Greeks would try to reason as it governed the world. But John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, no, it's not impersonal. He uses it as God coming to us, all right? That it's congruent, that it has purpose, but it's personal. It's actually the second person of the Trinity Jesus himself. Verse 14, and the word Jesus 
became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Undeserved gift after undeserved gift. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I love this last part. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at his father's side is Jesus. He has made him known. And that last part is... John is basically saying, if you want to know God, right, this omnipotent, this uh, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God, look no further than Jesus. Jesus makes God personal. Jesus uh, tells you, like, what is God like? It's that relationship. Colossians 1.19 says that, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. It brought him great delight. And Jesus' life on earth perfectly represented God. For he was fully God and still fully man. The Bible says that he was perfectly obedient his whole life. He never sinned. He grew in wisdom and stature in front of man and God. But he never compromised God's holy law. He never once tried to go to other things to find life. He perfectly abided and remained inside God's holy and righteous will. His purpose for all men, Jesus was the only one that fulfilled that. We see in the Bible that Jesus did miracles. He, brought, he gave sight to the blind. He healed the lame. At his word, he calmed the seas and the wind because he had authority and power even over nature. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He took a little boy's lunch of uh, some bread and some fish and he fed a whole army of people. Jesus, one of the things I love is that he loved people. In the midst of hundreds, thousands of people all around him, because everyone wanted to get a glimpse of him, Jesus could lock eyes with you and love you and hear your story like you're the only person in the room. He was the great shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And there's something different. There's a lot of things different between Jesus and us, but one of the, the things that was also different, is Jesus was the only man that was born in this world with the sole purpose to die. Let me say that again. Jesus was born with the sole purpose to die. In Isaiah 53.10, we see from God's word that it was God's will, it was in his plan all along, to crush his son, Jesus, to put him to grief. Remember what I, when I said that our condition was so grave, so desperate, that God would go through extreme lengths, extreme costs to reach and rescue us? Well, that cost was giving his one and only son. 
And let me just ask you a question. We're just going to pause for a moment. Who would you die for? Think about that. Who would you lay down your life for? Who's valuable and worth that much to you? And not just like, hey, donate blood or, or give a kidney for you'll still live. But I mean like literally like this person is dying and you are giving your heart to them so that they may live. And with that, you're no longer here. I was thinking about this and obviously, without a doubt, my wife and my kids in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. And then I thought about you guys. And I know a lot of you, your friends. And I try to do a lot of things to lay down my life to show you that I love you. But when it comes to that, I don't know. <laughs> Not going to lie. Chris and I have these conversations all the time, and she just gets mad. She's like, no, you better not. Uh, like, our kids need you. But think about that. And I know you guys. You guys are friends. But what makes the gospel so remarkable is that God didn't just die for people that thought they were good. God died for his enemies. His enemies. Those who forsook him and went their own way. Died for his enemies. Let me show you from God's word. Romans 5, if you want to turn there. Starting in verse 6. Romans 5, 6. It says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows or demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. And this is why the gospel is beautiful, it's glorious, it's radical, it's unthinkable. Because no one in their right mind would dare to die for their enemies. Their enemies. But God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And this is why the Christmas story is the greatest news you will ever hear, greater than any vaccine that could come out greater than any money in your bank account because God gave his one and only son for you, his enemy, so that you may live forever with him. John three sixteen, very common verse. You might have heard of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And how did he do this? What did he do for us? Maybe you're hearing this for the first time. Look at Romans again. In verse nine, it says this, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
And so this word justified is a legal term. It's meaning that your debt, your whole debt has been wiped clean. It's been paid for. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, the wages of rebellion against God is death. It's separation from God, both here and now and for eternity. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus took your sin, took my sin, took the sins of the world and placed it on himself and went to the cross and died a criminal's death, the death that you and I deserved. And God's holy and righteous wrath was poured out on him. And if you want to know what God thinks about sin, look to the cross. Read it for yourself. Look through what Jesus went through. The the one who was perfect, who didn't have to go through this, but this was the only way to be made right with God. So he crucified him. Torture. Do you know what happened while on the cross during the sixth hour? The sixth hour is 12 p.m., by the way. Back in that day, the the day started at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour is 12 p.m., to 3 p.m. It's in the middle of the day and Jesus on the cross. It says that darkness swept over the land. Swept over the land. And I was thinking about this and praying about this. And I'm like, this is an oxymoron, guys. Don't you see? How can darkness sweep over the land when the Bible says that Jesus is the great light of the world? It doesn't make sense. For darkness is the absence of light, and Jesus is there. It's because, I think the Bible's communicating, that Jesus took our sin, took the evil of the world, took the darkness all around, and put it on himself. And that's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine the God of the universe forsaking his one and only son? His son that he loves? That's because he hates sin. And on his final moments, he cried out and he said, it is finished. My mission is completed. It says that there was an earthquake and the curtain of the temple, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, which signifies the separation between God and man. It was torn in two. Sin was no longer a barrier between us and God for it was placed on Jesus and he died for us. Jesus took, again, the death that we deserved because he so abundantly loved us. And the story continues. It says that when he died, Joseph, which is one of his friends, went to Pilate, and he said, hey, Pilate, I would love to give Jesus a proper burial. And Pilate agreed to it. So Joseph took Jesus down, and he placed him in a cold, in an empty, in a dark tomb. I can imagine Joseph is is thinking, this is the end. We had all this hope for Jesus and what he was going to do. And everything was going great. And then he died for us. Like, he died on the cross. 
What happened? It didn't have to be this way. And maybe he was thinking hope was lost as Jesus' body rotted away. John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. I'm going to read that again. That is great news, guys. The light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. This is a good news. For on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Death cannot and will not keep him down. It will not have the final word. Jesus is risen and he appeared to the disciples. He appeared to over 500 people. He said, touch me, look. I am the risen, reigning, undefeated king. And I have conquered your darkness. I've conquered your darkness. Jesus is everything, guys. I have a quote. It should be in your bulletin. It says this, God's response to our rebellion was to give us himself. He is a great redeeming, transforming gift. He is the rescue. He is the forgiveness. He is the restoration. He is the life, the hope, the peace, and security. There is no salvation apart from him. There's no deliverance from the presence and power of sin apart from him. There's no restored relationship with God apart from Jesus. There's no new heaven and new earth apart from him. There's no end to sickness and suffering apart from him. There's no defeat of death apart from him. There is simply no such thing as redeeming grace and all that it means apart from the willingness of God to give us himself and the person of the Messiah Jesus Christ. See, this isn't the end when Jesus died. It's just the beginning. For with his new and resurrected life, he offers new life to you and to me. Remember this face? It's like, stop trying to fix and save yourselves. I sent my son. I've done everything possible for you to be made whole, for you to be made right, for you to experience heaven with me for eternity. Stop trusting in yourself, but trust in me. And so as we close, I'm going to invite the band back up. I just want to take just a moment and just kind of think and reflect on this message. And I want to give you guys the opportunity. In John 1.12, it says this, yet to, Jesus is saying this, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in my name, I give you the right to become children of God. This new life, born of God. But you had to receive what I've done for you. You had to believe that my payment was in full. A lot of gifts, guys, are going to be exchanged this Christmas. But I want to give you the opportunity to receive the greatest gift of all time. The gift of God's son for your life. In which he gives out graciously peace and forgiveness. You can have that right here, right now. 
I know. You can have that right here and right now. And so if you would like to receive this gift, I want to say a quick prayer, and I would love for you to pray with me with this. Let's pray. Bow your heads, please. Dear God, I confess that I am a sinner. Lord, you see my innermost thoughts. You know the ugliness of my heart. And you know how often I try to go to other things to find life. And yet you still love me. You still sent your son Jesus for me, your enemy. And so I just confess, I believe that you did what no one else could do. You paid the price for my sin and you gave me peace with you and with God. Right now, I surrender control. I step down from the throne of my own heart and I submit and yield to you, King Jesus. For you are my King and you are my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray.